So these believers in Smyrna were in a difficult situation. In verse 9, we learn that they were experiencing extreme economic hardship as a result of slander from some zealous Jews. And so Smyrna was uh, in the Roman Empire, and it was a center for emperor worship. And under Roman law, only Caesar could be worshipped. The, but the, the, uh, the, the Jewish people had an exception. Judaism was one of the exceptions to this rule. And Judaism was the only non-Roman religion permitted in the empire. And for a while, Christianity enjoyed protection because it was seen as a sect of Judaism. But zealous Jews began to distinguish themselves from Christians. And these, these particular Jewish people hated Christians for saying that Jesus is the Messiah. So they begin to turn them into the Roman authorities as enemies of the state, thus the slander. So they would turn them into the Roman authorities and say, hey, these people over here, these Christians, they're not worshiping Caesar as Lord. They're worshiping Jesus as Lord, which was true. But then they were also saying, and because of that, they're dangerous. They want to overthrow the Roman government. And they started lobbing all of these accusations. And as a result... Christians were being persecuted, and in many cases, they were being thrown in jail and even executed. And what we see here in Smyrna is that Christians were losing their jobs, they were being fined, they were having property confiscated. And in verse 10, Jesus told the church that things were about to get worse. Many of them were about to be thrown into prison, and some would even be put to death. And yet, as Jesus delivers this news... To these believers, he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. That chafes against our understanding of how God works, doesn't it? We want that to read, do not fear, you are not about to suffer, right? That's what we want it to read, but that's not what it says, is it? Jesus says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. So how can Jesus expect these believers who are about to face prison and maybe even death not to be afraid. Isn't that the very thing we're trying to avoid? What do you mean, Jesus? That's literally what I'm afraid of, is is being uncomfortable. It's going to prison. It's being killed. I'm afraid of that. So how can you say, don't be afraid? And how can we overcome the fear of persecution today to remain faithful to Jesus and endure to the end? I see at least five reasons in this passage that believers can endure persecution without fear to the end. That's why Jesus wrote this letter to the church in Smyrna. And so I want us to unpack some of these truths, these reasons that Jesus gives here to not be afraid, even in the face of something like prison and death. The first reason is that Jesus rules over history and over death. Don't overlook Who is telling us not to be afraid of prison and death here? Look how Jesus introduces himself. He says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. One of the amazing things about these seven letters to the churches is that in the the introduction or the salutation to each of the seven letters, Jesus introduces himself by highlighting a specific aspect of his glory 
as the Son of Man that was revealed in chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. You guys remember we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, and we saw this description of the Son of Man. Well, if you'll notice, in each of these seven letters, Jesus' description points back to Revelation 1, 9 to 20, and this description of the Son of Man. And in each of these letters, the description of Jesus is directly related to the specific situation of that church. It's as if Jesus is highlighting a specific aspect of who he is that he knows will bring particular comfort to this particular people in their specific situation. If there's anything about Jesus that believers facing prison and death need to be reminded of, it's that he rules sovereignly over history and that he's defeated death. What could possibly bring them more comfort? So what, a, what better way could Jesus possibly have introduced himself to the church at Smyrna? The first and the last means that Jesus always has and always will reign over all things. Nothing happens in history outside of his purview. The believers in Smyrna needed this reminder because judging from their present circumstances, it sure didn't seem like Jesus was ruling over their circumstances. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there right now. It's easy for us to ask, where is God when things aren't going well, isn't it? But God reminds us in his word that he is sovereign even over our suffering. Persecution is not random. It doesn't take God by surprise. He doesn't react to it. In fact, He appoints it. He appoints it. Jesus told the church in Smyrna exactly what was about to happen and how long it was going to last. They would be thrown into prison for 10 days and some would be called to be faithful unto death. This isn't just foreknowledge from Jesus. It's not like Jesus is just merely looking into the future in his crystal ball to see what's going to happen as if he doesn't have any control over it. Over and over, Scripture is clear that God is sovereign over even the smallest details of life, including persecution. God, in his wisdom, somehow ordains all of it to happen and he works all of it together for the good of his people. One of the clearest examples of this in Scripture is Matthew 10, 28 to 31. In Matthew 10, Jesus was preparing to send out the 12 disciples on a short-term mission, and he was explaining to them the reality of the persecution that they were going to face. And ultimately, it's applicable to the church overall. He was preparing the church as a whole for the reality of persecution that we, that we would face. And we read a portion of Matthew 10 earlier. Doug read it. He said, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. But he encouraged them not to be afraid. In verses 28 to 31, listen to what Jesus says. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. A sparrow is one of the smallest, most insignificant creatures, yet not a single one falls to the ground apart from the sovereign purpose and plan of God. That's what Jesus is saying. God holds the, the length 
of days of even the smallest sparrow in the sky in his hand. He's planned it from before the foundation of the earth. And so Jesus' point is that since God is sovereign over even the death of sparrows, he is also sovereign over the death of his servants. And because he is sovereign over all things, God also has a purpose for persecution. As believers, our suffering is never meaningless or aimless. Jesus told the church in Smyrna, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Jesus isn't saying here that persecution is a test that we need to pass to earn our salvation. The testing here is referring to a refining. The way that a precious metal is tested in the fire so that it comes out pure. So the result of the persecution of the church in Smyrna is that those who endured would grow in godliness and in Christlikeness. So what Satan intended for evil, God meant for good. Satan means to crush the church through persecution. He hates God and he hates God's people and he intends to destroy the church through persecution. But his efforts only serve to strengthen the church and to spread the gospel. Did you hear that? Satan's efforts to destroy the church through persecution only serve to strengthen the church and to spread the gospel. God flips the evil intentions of Satan on their head. Romans 8.28 says that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That verse does not say God causes all things in your life to be good, to go the way that you want them to. He sa- it says that God causes all things, even bad things, to work together for your ultimate good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that includes persecution. The greatest example in history of this is the cross of Christ. You see, Jesus not only rules over history, but Jesus entered into history. He was born of a virgin. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless, perfect life, fully pleasing to God. He fulfilled the law where we failed to fulfill the law. But even though Jesus was innocent, he came for one purpose. Jesus said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. You know, the devil tempted Judas to betray Jesus hoping to destroy him once and for all. Jesus was arrested, he was falsely accused, he was condemned to die, but the crucifixion of the Son of God was predestined by God from the beginning. It was God's plan all along. Jesus' death was no accident. It was the sovereign plan of God to bring about the salvation of sinners like you and me. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God that we deserve, paying our sin debt so that we could receive his perfect righteousness. So on Friday and Saturday, it looked like evil had won. It looked like Satan was victorious as the righteous son of God hung lifeless on the cross as he was taken down from the cross and placed in a tomb. But all along, Satan was only serving to fulfill God's purpose. Because on the cross, Jesus defanged Satan. Colossians 2.15 says he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. How so? Because what what, what does Satan do? He's the accuser. 
He accuses the saints before the throne night and day. But now because Jesus has canceled the record of debt that stood against us when it was nailed along with him to the cross, because he's taken away our debt, Satan's accusations against believers fall lifeless to the floor. They have no more merit. Satan cannot point at a Christian and say, he's guilty. She's guilty. They deserve condemnation. They deserve death. No, Christ has paid it all. So he, he can no longer accuse us before the throne. That's what Colossians means when it says he's been disarmed. So Satan, the very act that he used to try to destroy the Son of God and to destroy God's people actually served to save God's people and to bring ultimate glory to Jesus. God causes the schemes of Satan to be turned on their head. What Satan meant for evil, God intends for good. And it only gets better from there because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. Not only is God sovereign over our persecution, not only does He purpose it for our ultimate good, but even death is not the last word. Because Jesus is alive, those who are in Him will also live forever. Jesus rules over history and over death. Persecution is not random and death does not have the last word. That should bring tremendous hope to us in the face of suffering, in the, in the face of false accusations and slander. Jesus rules over history and death. The second reason we don't need to fear in the face of persecution is that Jesus knows our tribulations. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, in verse 9. That does not just mean I know about them, like I've, I've heard in the news about what you guys are going through, my condolences. No, no. Jesus is saying, I know experientially. I'm with you. When no one else understands, when no one else is by our side, Jesus is. And towards the end of his life, the Apostle Paul found himself alone in a Roman prison, He had been arrested for his faith and many who had been by his side scattered and abandoned him because to identify yourself with Paul would have probably meant a death sentence for you too. And Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17. He said, at my first defense, a.k.a. my trial, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. The Lord was with Paul even when everyone else abandoned him and continued to give him boldness when he stood to testify before the Roman authorities, just like we read about in Matthew chapter 10. The Spirit will give you the words to say in that hour. Jesus is not out of touch. He doesn't live in an ivory tower. He has endured the same sufferings and temptations as you and much, much worse. And he is with us now. He sees the slander of false accusations. He sees the mistreatment. He sees the rejection. And he knows the truth. Jesus knows our tribulations. The third reason we don't need to fear persecution is that our treasure is in heaven. The Christians in Smyrna were suffering tribulation and poverty as a result of the slander of their opponents. But Jesus says something remarkable to them in verse 9. Did you see that? He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. 
He says to these impoverished Christians, you are rich. In the kingdom of God, things are not as they seem. To the outward observer, these Christians appeared weak and impoverished. But because they had Christ, they were actually rich. The Apostle Paul describes himself and and his companions like this in 2 Corinthians 6.10. He says, we are poor, yet making many rich. We have nothing, yet we possess everything. How can this be the case? Like, What does that even mean? It's because you can have all the material wealth and health in the world, but it will all pass away. But those who have Christ have everything because there is nothing more valuable than Christ Jesus. Nothing. In Christ, we are heirs to the kingdom of God. All things belong to Jesus, and those who trust in Him will share in that inheritance with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. Having our treasure in heaven is what enables us to be open-handed with worldly comforts right now. It's what keeps Christians from falling away when our worldly goods are threatened. Because if your hope or your identity is tied to your job or to your finances or to your reputation, then when those things are threatened, you will cave. You won't want to lose those things. When someone says, stop standing from these truths in the stop standing for these truths in the Bible or your employment will be terminated, you'll compromise. You'll cave if your career is your idol, if your finances are what you're living for and that's what your identity is in. The truth is, the pressure from the culture alone has already caused many Christians to do this without even being explicitly told to do so. Too many believers are closet Christians at work and in their social circles and at home, careful not to rock the boat or bring any attention to the fact that They're a follower of Christ and that they believe these backward things in the Bible. Because to speak up about the gospel at work would immediately bring scrutiny on some of us. And we know it. And so some people just choose not to talk about it. I'm just going to keep my lips shut. And so what do we do? We compartmentalize our lives. I've got my church box over here. And I'll talk about church things and Bible things over here with my church friends. And then I've got my work box over here where I don't really bring that stuff up. I just talk about work. I don't bring that stuff up with my family. I don't bring up that stuff with my friends because I don't want things to get weird. Or I don't, you know, I don't want them to think that I'm some crazy religious fanatic or that I actually believe this stuff. Because, man, what would people think about me if they knew that I believed what's written in this book? That kind of Christianity, brothers and sisters, will not stand the fires of persecution. It just won't. When the heat gets turned up on the church, that kind of Christianity is going to wilt. It's going to be gone. Like the fires of persecution are going to burn up lukewarm Christianity. And part of me says, good riddance. Good riddance. Do you want to be liberated from closet Christianity? then you need to treasure Christ as supreme in your heart. That's how we're liberated from closet Christianity. When Christ Jesus is our treasure, when we value him more than anything else, then we don't have to cower in fear when our reputation is threatened or our finances are threatened or when our safety or our freedom is threatened. We can continue to hold fast to the gospel and continue to share the word of God with boldness, knowing that our treasure's in heaven. 
Like even if they take our lives, Christ Jesus is alive and seated on the throne and we're going to be raised forever to live with Him. And the meek are going to inherit the earth. All things belong to Christ. So even if all of our possessions are plundered, guess what? All things belong to those who are in Christ. All things are yours, says Paul. Here's the reality, guys. The bottom line is that closet Christianity is no Christianity at all. How can we say that we would die for Christ if we won't even live for Him? Like, is really? We're going to die for Christ when we won't live for Him right now? If you don't choose Him over wealth or reputation or a career, then you're not going to choose Him over your life when it comes down to it. Jesus said, whoever clings to his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Like Paul in Philippians 3, do you count everything else as rubbish compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord? Is that true of you? That that knowing Jesus is better than everything else this world has to offer. Everything else is garbage compared to that. There's nothing better than knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Satan cannot intimidate Christians who know that they are rich in Christ, even if all their possessions are taken from them. He can't do it. Knowing that your treasure is in heaven is what enables you to live for Christ now. The fourth reason this passage gives us to not fear persecution, even to the level of prison or death, is that there is something worse than prison or death. There's something worse than prison or death. Jesus told the church in Smyrna not to be afraid of what they were about to suffer because there is something worse than prison or death, and it's the second death. And he says essentially the same thing in Matthew chapter 10 to his disciples. We just read this verse a moment ago, verse 28. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So... I mean, that's kind of a crazy passage when you think about it, right? It's an amazing statement. Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of people. All they can do is kill you. Really, Jesus? Death is the worst possible scenario for those who have no resurrection hope. But we believe in a judgment to come and in a risen Lord Jesus who promises everlasting life to those who trust him. The second death refers to hell. That's another term for hell. And hell is eternal separation from God forever in a place where there is no hope, only endless torment. God, the righteous judge, has the authority to send us there. And that's exactly what everyone deserves apart from the grace of God. But Christ Jesus died on the cross for our sins, taking the punishment we deserve so that those who repent of their sin and trust in him could be forgiven and receive the crown of life. Those who continue to trust in Jesus, who fear God more than man and are faithful even unto death, will receive the crown of life. They will not be hurt by the second death, Jesus says in verse 11. In light of the reality of the second death, we need to get serious about warning people of the judgment to come. Let's stop tiptoeing around this doctrine for fear that we will sound like brimstone and fire Christians. 
Now, we don't want to scare anyone into following Jesus, nor can we, okay? The only way somebody becomes a follower of Jesus is by the miraculous regeneration of the Holy Spirit. We can't convince somebody to become a Christian. We can't save anybody. We can't convert anybody. Only God can do that, all right? So we're not scaring people into following Jesus, but let's get real and biblical here. The second death is brimstone and fire. It's horrific. It is endless torment. And I think that in many ways, out of fear of, of sounding like you know these crazy brimstone and fire people, we've taken the pendulum and swung it all the way to the other end, and now we just don't talk about that stuff at all. And we just pretend like it's not there and like it's not real, but it is, and it's right here in God's Word. The second death is not something to be taken lightly. Hell is not something to be taken lightly. And to soften it up or to smooth over this biblical teaching in hopes of being more appealing to the world around us is not only unfaithful, it won't work. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.17 that if we start using clever speech to win converts in our proclamation of the gospel, that we empty the cross of Christ of its power. Because now we're not depending on the word of God and the power of the gospel to save. We're depending on our own cleverness. We're de- depending on our own uh, you know, or, you know, skills to be able to, to teach and to preach the word. And God's not going to share his glory with any preacher. There is a judgment day coming. And the fate of those who refuse to repent of their sin and follow Jesus will be far worse than that of the Christians who are killed for their faith. Hell is described as a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where after 10,000 years of the most exquisite suffering, you will be no closer to the end of your anguish than when you first began. And this will be the just and righteous sentence of a holy God towards every sinner who refuses to submit to Jesus. It's the sentence every one of us deserves. But for believers, it's what we've been rescued from. It's what Christ has saved us from. He saved us from this certain destruction by taking on the wrath of God that we deserved in our place. I love how uh, Ian DeGuid uh, says it. He's a commentator, uh, and he wrote this. He said, Jesus felt the full measure of the fiery agonies of hell distilled into six hours of exquisite agony. Exquisite agony. The debt for every sin that I ever committed was laid on his shoulders, and he bore it all. What love is this? What glorious news this is that Christ bore our penalty in our place. And we need to go and proclaim this good news to a world that doesn't want to think about Judgment Day. Let's just be real. Yes, we will get some angry reactions. Because people suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. That's what Romans 1 tells us. When you confront people trying to suppress the truth with the truth, sometimes they don't like it very much. But sometimes God uses it to pluck another soul from the flames. 2 Corinthians tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. And the only thing that can open their eyes is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we must proclaim the gospel. We can't just let people 
walk on into eternity in this place called hell with, without being warned, without being pleaded with to repent of their sin and to turn and to trust in Christ. We need to care. And we need to care enough to be willing to get uncomfortable. I'll be honest, I've, I've been concerned. Just, I just want to get practical here and just speak to the, our church and to the members of our church. I've been concerned at the lack of participation in evangelistic outreach in things like gospel and grub. And my, my fear for our church is that we would turn inward and that we would start doing everything that we do to just, just for our own fellowship. And, for, and, you know, hey, it's great to get together and do things like small groups. It's great to get together and worship on Sunday mornings. We need to be doing these things. But the reason that we're doing these things is so that we can equip you to go out and do the work of ministry throughout the week. We need to be proclaiming the gospel. We need to be committed to doing this work of going and being a light in our community. There are, as I had said in the announcements earlier, there are several opportunities for you to do that. You can come tonight. And on a night where darkness is being celebrated by many around our city, we can go and we can proclaim the good news of Christ. We can go and be a light right here in Capitol Hill. There's opportunities to... Uh, to, to come and to meet our neighbors and to have gospel conversations next Saturday when we go and hand out the grocery bags to collect food to feed the hungry. We're going to have gospel and grub. We're actually moving gospel and grub to, to Sundays, um, the second Sunday of the month in November and December, right after church is over. We're going to go and we're going to go out and we're going to share the gospel with people and then we're going to go eat a meal together. We're going to go have lunch. So uh, November the 14th and December the 12th. So like, Join us in that. There are real opportunities to get involved. If you're not knowing how to, to share the gospel and that's an intimidating prospect to you, we'll teach you how. We'll show you how. You can come and follow me and watch me do it. I'll take you with me. And you can just watch the first time you go. We need to share this news with people. All right, the fifth reason in our passage that we do not need to fear persecution, is that those who remain faithful will receive the crown of life. Jesus says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So the Christians in Smyrna might be put to death under the authority of the Roman crown, but their apparent defeat would result in receiving the victorious crown of life from King Jesus. And this crown is given to the victors, to those who in Christ conquer and overcome the assaults of Satan. Now, I want to be clear here that we do not conquer Satan by our own power. Revelation 12, 11 tells us how we overcome Satan, how we conquer. It says that the saints, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. In other words, Christians can stand blameless before God. We can faithfully endure to the end because we are, our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus and because we did not deny him with our lips and with our lives. We continued to testify that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died, who rose again, who's alive forevermore, even unto death. We did not stop proclaiming that message. We did not stop believing that message. That's how we conquer Satan. We hold fast to the gospel. We continue to believe. We continue to place our trust and our hope in Christ. The crown of life here means not just eternal life, by the way, but also participation in Christ's heavenly and victorious rule. 
And it's this promise of eternal life that spurs believers on to endure. The Apostle Paul, he understood this well. He endured many sufferings, but he did so with joy. How did he do that? Because he knew that these light momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Another believer who understood this was a man named Jerome Russell. He was martyred for his faith along with Alexander Kennedy in 1539 under the rule of Henry VIII. And he and Alexander Kennedy, who was 18 years old, by the way, were condemned to be burned at the stake for their Christian faith. And on the way, as they were being led to the execution spot, the young Alexander Kennedy became timid and visibly afraid. And so Jerome Russell said to him, he said, Brother, fear not. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The pain that we are to suffer is short and shall be light, but our joy and consolation shall never have an end. Let us therefore strive to enter into our Master and Savior's joy by the same straight way which he hath taken before us. Death cannot hurt us, for it is already destroyed by him, for whose sake we are now going to suffer. John Fox, who recorded this story, went on to write that when they arrived at the fatal spot, they both kneeled down and prayed for some time, after which, being fastened to the stake and the kindling having been lighted, they cheerfully resigned their souls into the hands of him who gave them in full hopes of an everlasting reward in the heavenly mansions. The Apostle Paul and Jerome Russell had their eyes on the prize. Jesus calls us to put ours there as well. That's how we faithfully endure. The danger that the church in Smyrna faced and the danger that we face is that the fear of persecution would keep us from remaining faithful to Jesus. We need to prepare for what will likely be increased persecution in the future and we need to overcome the fear that keeps our witness silent today. And Jesus gives us the grace to overcome that fear. And we saw the five reasons not to in this passage today. Jesus rules over history and death. Jesus knows our tribulation. Our treasure is in heaven. There is something worse than prison and death. And those who remain faithful will receive the crown of life. We're going to close, I'm going to close this in prayer, and then Pastor Thomas is going to come up, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together this morning to respond to God's Word. God, I thank you for your Word. I thank you and praise you, Jesus, that you are the one who went before us and you suffered in our place. It's true that as followers of you, we are called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow you. And there may be suffering that we are called to walk through. But Jesus, you endured the greatest suffering in our place so that we would never have to. You bore the full wrath of God that we deserved so that we could be forgiven of our sins and you had defeated death by rising from the grave and you are alive. I pray that that truth would give your people great hope and confidence this morning and that it would cause fear in our hearts to shrink and to melt away and that we would be faithful witnesses of Jesus here in this city 
confident in your promises, confident, Lord, that you are alive and that our reward and treasure is in heaven. I love you. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.